I had to shake him on my last case, big O don't play. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Musky Hunks podcast. I'm one of your four hosts this evening. We may have a fifth, we may not. Mr. Swinks on baby duty. So uh, we have a uh, we have a pretty exciting guest for this evening. I think we're all really excited about this. Um, this is going to be a really good opportunity for us to uh, to kind of get into some uh, some fish talk. So before we do that want to check and see who we have on the call and i'm going to start with mr nick fiesler good evening glad to be here a little glimpse of spring getting excited oh it's beautiful he gets more and more official every time yeah that did you have the headphones last time you're like oh yeah oh okay that's gonna say last time it was the new mic now it's fancy new headphones um i'm the epitome of professional looks like it it's called really? investing it's called investing in your product tom in the craft right. yeah wow i'm just gonna i'm just gonna assume that nick's doing well he's in a very bright and cheery mood up there just no not digging out of any snow nope, no snow we're all good all right we also have on the call tonight mr tommy two crocs vanada hello hello oh, tommy you always give me that hello. Got to mix it up. How's the uh, Nick's? If I steal Nick's, I'll get I'll get roasted. How's the uh, How's the cat doing? Oh, sh- different cat. Girlfriend's cat. All right, male well, cat, how, not horny. How How's Kayla doing tonight? Good. I can hear her hanging out. Wow. Doing some sticker books, maybe coloring books. I don't know. Oh, there you go. All right, so. One more, uh, one more hunk on the line this evening, and that is the one and only Big O's Bucktails, Mr. Owen Seaman. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. How's the family doing? Very well. Uh, everyone has spring fever in my household. Everyone's clawing to get, get outside. So these past couple of days have been, have been nice. Big Rich already called me today about a project. Did he really? Stirring. Oh, yeah. He's already planning projects for up at the the cabins <laughs> i told him the other day i said tom tom said whenever you're ready to do man stuff give him a call i'm ready wow. got my gloves and my bibs better stay on top of it tom or else uh mr seaman's gonna be changing locks on you mm-hmm. <laughs> be cutting down trees making you chop wood i'm ready let's do this all right let's so let's it. uh let's get into this one this one's uh again this is like i'm super pumped and i i I couldn't be any more pumped because we just came off of Musky Max. And it's been like two weeks and I'm still amped up. So, <laughs> Owen, uh, I'm going to kick it over to you. Let's introduce our guest. Absolutely. This is, uh, this is one that I have personally you know, tried to set up because I've been following this guy on Instagram here for at least a year or two. I, I, it's, been, it's been a while because his research really caught my, caught my eye. Uh, his name is Camden Glade. And he is from Minnesota. We'll get into the details of exactly where he's from, but this is going to be a podcast that's going to be more serious, so to speak, uh, meaning we are talking to someone who really legitimately knows what he's talking about, meaning he's done scientific research on this. And uh, he actually just completed his master's and just defended his master's, uh, I guess it's his thesis. And the the main, the, the topic of it is 
musky diets and specifically how those musky how musky diets interact or overlap with other fish eating fish you know other other you know piscivores so to speak and in the in the different types of prey that are found in in the lakes that he that he studied so Camden, first and foremost, thank you very much for coming on the show tonight. I know I've been trying to track you down here for a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. This should be fun. So your research jumped out at me because you don't see a lot of people. All right, let me back up. As a beginner muskie fisherman, one of the things that is very, I guess, difficult to conceptualize is handling fish. It is like handling muskies on a regular basis. So seeing how you guys are, you know, your research is basically you're, you're, you're using the gastric lavage procedure, right? Which is forcing the fish to regurgitate whatever it had recently eaten. That's late in a layman's terms, right? Yeah. Essentially what we're doing is we're, we're using just like a standard bilge pump that you'd find in any boat. Um, we rig it up with some tubing and a hose nozzle, and then the nozzle goes into the esophagus of the fish and we pump water into the stomach until the pressure builds up and forces anything that they've eaten recently back out. Um, some things come out easier than others. Some things need a little bit of encouragement, especially some of the bigger stuff that those muskies can take down. But for the most part, it's, it's really effective. Um, we've looked at effectiveness of it on the other species and we're getting basically everything every time. And uh, we're able to release the fish alive, which is the best part about it. So is that kind of like an industry standard type of thing? Like, or is that something that you guys have sort of manufactured because i mean i've watched the discovery channel where they use these giant contraptions to to keep uh sharks you know uh hydrated you know and oxygenated while while they have them out of the water i imagine it's kind of similar to that where you're running a tube down their mouth and you know and you keep them wet the whole time i would assume yep and it's it's a really quick process too i mean on the long end even with some of the the more difficult things to remove, you're looking at maybe a minute or two that the fish is out of the water. Um, but yeah, we're, you're running water into their mouth the whole time and keeping them wet. Um, I will say that some of the videos that maybe you've seen on my Instagram, um, it does look a little bit more intrusive than maybe some beginning musky anglers would, would think that you want to handle muskies. But, um, from firsthand experience, I, I can say that they're able to handle it and they, they kick off really strong once we're done. So, well, I guess well, it's good... kind of like, uh, I, I, I kind of look at it like when, as a parent, when your kid is throwing up, it like looks like the most violent thing. You know what I mean? It just, it, it, it looks awful, but it's not really hurting them. It's, it's, yeah, it's probably an uncomfortable, I'm sure the fish don't enjoy the process, but you know, it it leaves them no worse for wear. I I would hope. Yeah. Yep. So Ryan, I saw you had a question. Well, I was, I'm really interested in this, what Camden just said there, because I spent some time out at the Linesville fish hatchery a couple of years ago. Um, I was fortunate enough to, to go up and do some video with one of our guys here, Jared Sayers. And I saw that process of spawning and I was always like under the impression that these fish were just like super, uh, for lack of a better term, soft, you know, like easily broken, like, uh, 
you have to be like super careful. You'll kill them if you breathe on them type thing. So I was kind of curious because my experience at the hatchery opened my eyes to just like how durable these fish are. So I don't know, can you like Camden, can you kind of speak to that a little bit more? Like you, you kind of alluded to like some of the videos on your Instagram, but what is there anything like in particular you can kind of give us on the durability of the fish? Yeah. Uh, just for an example, um, like we've pulled suckers over 20 inches that have been recently digested or recently consumed and not really digested out of a fish. And then you drop it back in the water and you get splashed as it kicks away from the boat. Um, we, we've seen bullheads and stomachs and even with the spines, um, as long as they're digested, at least minimally, the, we really don't see any adverse effects there either. And okay. Yeah. So that, that, that brings me to a question I had written down here was the spines. Everyone's picked up a sunfish and you know, that that's <laughs> damn spine gets you and you bleed and not like, and when you're forcing that fish coming back up the muskies esophagus, you'd have to think that that would be a puncturing or some type of a damaging, you know, at least possible, but I didn't think about that, that the, the digestive system is already at work at that time. And it's probably softened things up. Yeah. And it, uh, these fish are really good at what they do. And so it really doesn't take very long for things to start happening in the stomach. Um, some of the bigger prey, like those big suckers or some of the other things will get the fish ready to start the procedure and you look down their throat to try to put the hose where it needs to go and there's a tail sticking out so you think oh okay this is going to be something really big really fresh well then you start pumping the stomach and yeah the tail end looks like it just got eaten but then by the time you get to the head end there's hardly anything left you've got oh some really some yeah you've got bones and maybe a little bit of soft tissue way on the head end and then it just slowly gets less and less digested as so you is go that, to the tail is that just a like a control of the depth of the stomach only you know i mean they kind of eat they, they literally have eyes bigger than their stomach there yeah and i mean the their stomachs are able to expand to some pretty crazy sizes so by that point I mean, the fish, it's not like half the fish is completely digested and gone, but the head end has been in the stomach long enough and those digestive juices are uh, potent enough, I guess, that they, they really start digesting pretty quick, even a 20 if inch whole... sucker like that, something that sizable, realistically speaking, how long would it take for a muskie to break that thing down? that's where it gets a little complicated. Um, it's all water temperature dependent at that point. Um, so they're, hmm. because fish are cold blooded, their metabolism changes with the environment that's around them. So in super cold water, something that big could take, you know, multiple days to up to maybe even like a week or 10 days or so to be completely digested. Whereas in summer months, when the water's warmer, their metabolism is really cranked up and it's, something that big, I mean, a week is probably pushing the high end of how long it takes something like that. Makes complete sense. Yep. Wow. So, so let's, let's back up a little bit because on, when we back way, way up, I feel like we hit the ground running like a jillion miles. Yeah, we did. And it, we that's great because I, I'm, I'm already fascinated by where we are, but yes, yeah. we haven't even told our guests like what yeah, they don't what even know who the hell type... Camden is yet. Yeah. So Camden, tell us a little bit about yourself what got you started? Uh, a, 
with angling and B got into the scientific end of things and didn't just want to, Hey, just, just go out and fish. Yeah. So I'm originally from farm country in Northwest Iowa. Uh, but I was fortunate oh. enough to go on family vacations up to Northern Minnesota for a week at a time, basically every summer from the time I was uh, nine or 10 years old, I think. That's becoming a theme on this show, yeah. uh, you know, cause the Baddock boys, you know, that's how I, that's how I got started was going to Northern Minnesota, man. It's a tough place to, to get out of your head once you've, once you've it, been up there. It really is. Yeah. So we, I grew up doing that, um, fishing, you know, my grandpa lived on a lake growing up in kind of Southwest Minnesota. So some of my very earliest memories are sitting on the dock, catching bullheads and sunfish with him. Um, and then those family vacations up North, you know, you start getting introduced to bass and pike and fish that have teeth and occasional walleye, if you got lucky. And so that it kind of kicked it off from there. And then I had a couple friends in high school that were big into hunting and fishing as well. So I got to do a little bit more fishing kind of locally in the Northwest Iowa area with them. Uh, a lot of bass fishing at that time. Um, and where are you currently located? Currently I'm in kind of Northern Minnesota, um, Bemidji, Minnesota is where I'm at. Okay. That's so that's kind of North universe. Central. That's the university yeah. you're with as well, right? Yep. Yep. That's correct. So kind of north central to pushing northwest. Um, uh, the town of Walker on Leech Lake is 45 minutes from my door. And we're about 20 miles straight to the west of Cass Lake, which are a couple of the bigger musky lakes up in our neck of the woods. Well, our missing the missing hunk here, Donnie Swink, he took he's fished up there a number of times for muskies and he just uh, fished up there in the muskie battle this past fall. OK, which is all those local lakes. It's uh, Cass, Bemidji, I think. What is it? Plana Janet, something like that. Yeah. Plantagenet. Plantagenet. Something like that. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, uh, I have not musky fished up there. The only the only place I've fished up there would be the Boundary Waters. Yep. Yeah. That'd be about two, two and a half hours kind of North and East of us. So cool. Uh, so, have you done any, did you do any muskie fishing in Iowa? I know there's a few lakes there. Yeah. So I, as I was in college the first time around, um, doing my undergrad, uh, once I figured out that I wanted to do some of this, uh, fish, fish science stuff, I was able to get a couple of internships with Iowa DNR. And the first one was at the Spirit Lake Fish Hatchery there on the Spirit Lake and Okapoji Lakes. Um, I tried to do a little bit of musky fishing that summer. Um, unfortunately, with the summer internship, you're there during peak boating season. And when you're working at a hatchery, you don't really get a lot of convenient time off to go and do some of that stuff when there aren't a million boats out on the lake. So I, I wasn't able to catch any muskies there. Um, the summer before that, I actually spent up doing a research internship through the University of Notre Dame, uh, right on the border of Wisconsin and the UP of Michigan. And there was there were muskies in one of the lakes up there. So I did a fair bit of muskie fishing up there. Um, it was definitely more of a numbers lake than a size lake. So the, I mean, biggest size that I ever saw was probably sub 40 inches. But uh, 
got my feet wet with muskies. Those were the first muskies that I was able to target and catch. And that definitely helped kickstart where I'm at right now. That's what cool took you to Bemidji. To there, yeah. yeah. So I guess between, between where I went to college the first time and then coming up to Bemidji for grad school, I spent a summer or a year actually working at a trout hatchery in Nevada. Um, and after working for a couple hatcheries in Iowa, doing some kind of walleye musky pike stuff, and then working at a trout hatchery, I had seen about all I needed to see of the hatchery side of things. Um, I know a lot of people love to do it and I know it's important work, but it just wasn't for me. I, I was not, not super thrilled with it. So I had started looking for graduate school. Um, my brother, my younger brother actually had done his undergrad here at Bemidji State, uh, got a business degree. So I kind of knew the college, um, had a couple connections through friends of friends that got me in contact with uh, my advisor at the college, the professor in the biology department. And they basically had the funding for this project getting finalized about the same time that I shot him an email asking if he had any projects open. So, so before you... So before you applied or like, did you contact them and say, Hey, I'm interested in getting a master's, you know, here's, uh, I'm interested in this side of things. Is this something you guys would be interested in? Or did you enroll already and then say, Hey, here's what I want to do. I was more so on the, the first option. Um, so when you're going to grad school in my field, um, a lot of times what you end up doing is you do a research assistantship where the university will have either internal money or money coming from like the state DNR or the Fish and Wildlife Service or some entity because they have a research question that can be answered for less money by a, a graduate student, basically. Right. So it, it, it's not traditional college like a lot of people think of it. Um, so they, they covered my tuition and my fees and everything and I made a living stipend. Um, it's, I mean, it's pretty minimal. It's nothing, nothing to write home about, but it covers your cost of living right. and helps you. I mean, you don't have to get a second job. You don't have to do any of that other stuff. And you're able to just focus on taking the classes that you need to take and then doing the research that they brought you there to do. And how much of it is classroom time versus clinical stuff or, you know, like physical real world stuff? Yeah, up where we're at, uh, basically the physical real world stuff was limited to about six months out of the year just due to ice conditions and weather and um, funding a little bit too because our project, we were looking at so many different lakes that we had to do a fair bit of travel. So we had a set travel budget before we started the project and we kind of had to stay within the limits of that. Um, so that limited us to how many different times we were able to travel to different lakes. And then, you know, you have to get hotel rooms every time you go there and you're, they're paying for your food while you're there and all that other stuff kind of adds up as well. Is it a university boat that you guys use or do you rent rent a, a boat for the season or what do you, what, what happens? So we were using all DNR equipment. Um, the funding for my project came from Minnesota DNR. So they basically gave us access to their uh, research boats at the Bemidji office. Um, so I worked really closely with the research biologist at the Bemidji office as well. So he and the professor at 
Bemidji State were kind of the lead investigators on the project. And then I kind of led the field crews, collected all the data and analyzed everything. And they were kind of co-supervising me through that process. Now, and how, go ahead, Nick. Sorry. In Minnesota, is that, um, I might be mixing up Minnesota and Wisconsin, but they kind of have like each lake has its designated biologist and then they dictate kind of the, you know, necessary stocking and inputs to the system based on trap nets and that sort of thing? Uh, there's not, there's very few lakes that have a designated biologist just for okay. the lake. Um, that's kind of limited to the really big kind of walleye factory lakes. Uh, you're okay. looking at like Lake of the Woods, Red Lake, Cass Lake, Leech Lake, those big kind of popular walleye destinations. Um, most of the time in Minnesota, you have an area office that basically covers all of the lakes within two, like a two to four county area surrounding their office. And then they have biologists and technicians and specialists that do the lake surveys every year, looking at their net catches. And then they uh, put in the requests for stocking amounts okay. and that kind of thing. Sounds pretty similar to the way Pennsylvania does theirs. Now, Minnesota is one of is one of the hot button topic states, so to speak, when it comes to muskies, meaning you have like a lobby against muskies saying, get rid of them because they ruin fish, otherwise productive uh, walleye fisheries. And I would think that there would be a reason to do this, to do this type of study that you've done here to, to, to say, hey, what are these muskies eating in these lakes where you have, you know, walleye president and whatever other, you know, uh, forage base. Yeah. Um, I'm sure a lot of people that have kind of been in the muskie scene for the last, you know, five to 10 years, remember, I think it was 2018 was the last time they made a really big push, but there were pushes in the Minnesota legislature to try to change how the state manages muskies. And I mean, there were some kind of ridiculous video clips of people making claims of you know muskies trying to attack little kids sitting on the dock or eating all the loons or something like that but really when you got down music yeah but really when you (laughs) got down into it they there was legitimate concern from those politicians the biologists other stakeholders of okay these muskies aren't necessarily in this lake we're gonna stock them there then what what happens to the lake is it going to change is adding the muskies just going to be an addition or is there also going to be some subtraction and how does that look and what kinds of lakes can handle the addition of muskies and not so that came to head came to a head in 2018 and that really kind of indicated to uh biologists within the state that this was some the kind of research that uh needed to be done in the state so uh, do you think that your i mean your your research started what in 2019 if i'm not mistaken so do you believe that it was is, is it directly correlated to that question of are muskies eating walleyes it's i think that was an encouragement i don't know that it was a direct question um kind of going back a little bit, there's been very few diet studies involving muskies. And a lot of that is just due to outside of the spring period when they're up spawning, 
it's really hard even for biologists to get their hands on these fish. And then in a lot of lakes where you're managing through stocking and the population densities are really low, um, these diet studies where you're doing the gastric lavage and uh, releasing the fish alive take a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of money. And it's not always feasible to do something kind of broad scale like that. Um, so there's, I mean, there's been one really good study in Wisconsin that did something pretty similar. And then there's been a handful of other studies where they've been kind of more focused on a specific potential prey item, whether that was Atlantic salmon out in kind of the east coast of or eastern part of Canada, or a lot of like stocked trout lakes in different parts of the world, or, you know, walleye and bass fisheries in kind of the more of the southern range of the of the muskie. But it's it takes a lot to do that. So we really didn't have good data on what muskies were eating in these lakes and how that might impact uh, the other popular game fish. And you didn't just do these gastric, I, I think you pronounced it lavage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess we're French here. <laughs> no, just, uh, <laughs> oh, lavage. <laughs> so you, this is not just muskies. This was largemouth bass. This was walleye and pike, right? Yep, that's correct. So we kind of, we were looking at kind of the four most popular predatory fish that Minnesota has in its lakes, um, trying to cover all of our bases and really look at how these predators are interacting in the lakes where they're, where they're sharing space and potentially sharing food. So I, I want to take a quick s- step back here. Cause I have, I have, a, a I have we take no, a lot of steps back. Camden. We do. We move very quickly. And I, I think, Backwards. you know, one of the things I have, like, this is a legit question I have for all of you guys, really, because when I first started musky fishing, like I didn't really, I didn't get this, like, there wasn't any negative connotation surrounding, you know, musky eating all my walleye or anything like that. They were just kind of like a mysterious fish to me. So where do you guys think all of this stuff comes from? Like, do you think this is like passed down, like this just like negative or like maybe falsified information or, you know, maybe just like the negative outlook on, on muskie in general, like, where does this all come from? If I I could give you my lay, my lay opinion, and this is just what I, I think right off the bat. And that's, and that is that, you know, people, if you're introducing muskies into a system, I think you have a a reasonable question as to how is that going to affect, you know, all the, the, the entire fishery. So I think people that are not familiar with muskies, it, it's a reasonable thing to be afraid of. And I don't want to say afraid of afraid of is not the right word. It's a, it's a reasonable thing to, to question, to say, if we put the biggest apex predator that didn't exist in this lake prior to, you know, this point in all of time, we're just going to put an apex predator into this body of water. We would be silly to not think ahead and and say, what type of impact is that going to have on the entire structure of, of the fishery? I mean, think about that. We would be, it's be ridiculous to not think, Hey, this could have a negative effect. So I, I, there have to have been studies. I know Pennsylvania has done studies with specifically with regard to, you know, uh, both muskies and tiger muskies, how those, you know, they will essentially chop off a certain 
I guess, forage base in in certain lakes. Well, what what about like what about all this stuff like muskies eat my dog, muskies eat my cat, muskies eat my children? Is this like is See, this is this coming from like the Jeremy Wade like that just general impression that every fish is a monster? Is that where this is coming from? I I always think of it more as like. If you're out there for eight or 12 hours all day and you don't catch a single thing, you quickly look for something to blame other than your fishing ability. And if you got, you got that much time to think about it, you're going to come up with something elaborate, you know? Camden, what do you think about like where, I mean, in, in, and this isn't like a trap, I'm not trying to get you to like say anything like, you know what I mean? It just, I'm just curious, like where this stuff comes from. Yeah. I know like, in the last couple of years, you know, just about every summer, or every other summer, you'll see a newspaper from someplace throughout the state or throughout the region where some little kid was sitting on the dock with their foot hanging over there and they got bit by a fish or they were out swimming in the lake and they got bit by something and people assume it was a fish. And I mean, I've, I've read most of those that I come across and there's definitely some of them that look like it could have been either a really big pike or a muskie just with the, t- the types of bite marks that they leave. But then in terms of like eating the fish, I mean, you think about the guys that are out fishing for bluegills or crappies or walleye and they're reeling in this fish off a weed line that's trying to throw a jig out of its mouth that basically looks like a nice big sucker on a quick strike rig that musky guys are using all the time. So it's not, I mean, it's not uncommon for a musky to come up and grab somebody's fish as they're reeling it to the boat. And if you're not, if you don't or if you've not been exposed to muskies prior to that, you see that and it's like, well, yeah, obviously they're eating walleyes because they just tried to steal the one that I had on my hook, or obviously they're eating the crappies I like to catch or the bluegills or whatever it might be. So I think, yeah, I think took a, took a meal out of my mouth and let's take them all. Yep. And it's, I mean, it's easy to see where that comes from because a lot of times, especially with fish, like we don't get to see them in their natural environment easily. Like we do a lot of other, even terrestrial wildlife. So when you, when you have that experience firsthand where you see this fish coming up and grabbing something that sticks and it's very, very much related to what you enjoy doing. And so it's easily to translate that to, oh, well, this is what they're eating all the time. Yep. I know. So uh, we've all been kind of reading the research you did, and I know we're going to get into that, dive into it a little more now that we know who you are at least. But um, when I was reading it, one of the things that popped into my head was as musky fishermen, we all know like the fable, the, like the musk or the musky ate all my walleye. Like you hear the walleye guys, I complain about it a lot, whatever. But I don't often hear the perch guys complain about it for whatever reason. And I found that really funny. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit here, but would you say that's like a fair assessment? Maybe the perch guys should be the ones that are a little angry, maybe not so much as the walleye guys. You know, I, I would say yes, but I think the perch guys could point the finger elsewhere a little easier than they could at muskies based on the stuff we've seen so far. Um, Yeah. They're just the target of everything. seems like everything eats perch. Yeah. (laughs) Everything wants the poor things. Yeah. Hey, before we get into that study too, I I've been, this is like, I'm dying to ask this question. Like Camden, what is, 
So it's a two-part question. Number one, what is the largest muskie you've personally caught? And two, what is the largest muskie that you've, you know, worked with from a scientific standpoint? Yeah. So unfortunately the largest one I caught was a mere 39 inches, which I guess that's, it's still a nice fish, but when, after seeing some of the fish that I've seen in the area lakes, it, it's a little scary to think that I thought that was a big fish when I hooked it. Um, the biggest fish we've gotten to date through this study, uh, was last August. It was 54.9 inches. So that was, that's the biggest one. And that one was actually one that we've caught twice. Um, so do you you have those GPS coordinates by hand? Yes. Uh, (laughs) not with me, but I could probably find them. Uh, but so yeah, a fish what, that size, how are you, how are you getting that fish? That fish, a, a 54 and a half incher is probably not reacting to electroshock, right? It's probably too big. You need well, a lot of juice for that one. So yeah. it's kind of backwards from how we would think about it. And it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around this too. So when you're pumping the electricity into the water, electricity is transferred over surface area. So those bigger fish have a larger surface area Mm. for the electricity to transfer over. So they actually Mm. get hit harder than more, right. than the Mm. smaller fish. The trick with muskies is because of that large surface area and because of their big, powerful tails and how strong of swimmers they are. If you're just kind of cruising around with the electricity running in the water the whole time, they feel that electricity a lot sooner than you're able to scoop them. So they're so out we'll of be, there before you Yeah, we'll you be cruising there. around and you'll see a wake, you know, 15, 20 yards ahead of the boat. And they're, I mean, they're gone. They're out to deep water. And hmm. I mean, you can try to go chase them down, but good luck. So, so the what way do you we, do to combat that? Yeah. So the way we do that for the muskies is we have typically two people um it works okay with one person as long as the wind cooperates but usually we like to have two people up on the front deck of the shocking boat and then another person driving and the two people up on the front deck have spotlights and they're kind of scanning the shallow water just looking for muskies laying up in the sand or up in the tops of the cabbage beds or whatever the kind of structure that we're driving through looks like and the electricity the generator is on and everything is ready to work but the way the safety measures of the shocking boat there's a dead man switch on the front deck where you have to be standing it's usually as a foot pedal so someone has to be standing on the foot pedal to close that circuit okay for the electricity to run so everything is running up to that switch but then they're not standing on the pedal so there's no electricity going into the water and I mean, muskies aren't scared of boats. We know that from angling. So they're, we're able to basically drive this big 18 foot electro fishing boat with spotlights and generators and everything directly on top of them. And usually they don't really react to it. And then once we get on top of them, somebody steps on that pedal and closes that circuit. And then it's kind of a, a rodeo to try to see which way the fish tries to kick off. And hopefully we're able to scoop it up pretty quick. Wow. So are you running an outboard with that or is this with a trolling motor? Yep. It's with an outboard. Um, I think the boat we've been using the last couple of years has a 70 horse um, outboard with a console drive on it. And how fast are you going? 
it depends. Um, a lot of it depends on water clarity and wind just, and how deep we're looking, uh, just how easy it is to see the fish. If we're up in super shallow water and it's flat calm and it's crystal clear, I mean, it's not crazy to go three to four miles an hour and kind of just cruise and cover water. Um, if we get into a good area where we're seeing multiple fish or if the visibility is not as great, we'll slow it way down and try to calm an area. But there's been times when we've really covered some ground in a night. Now you said you were, you seem pretty confident that was the same 54 and a half, but two times. Do you have it? Uh, do you like do a pit tag when you do capture these fish? So you yep. have a, okay. Yeah. So because it's so hard to get your hands on muskies, even as a biologist, um, a lot of the lakes that were included in this study, we coordinated with the DNR offices that were going to be doing their spring trap netting at the same time. So we're able to get our hands on more fish with the fish that they catch in the trap nets. And then when we're out there throughout the rest of the year, uh, we pit tag any of the new fish that we catch. And then we also record all the data from any of the old pit tags that we might catch. So any of the recaptures, we let them know how big the fish was. Um, if we catch something that they've tagged either that spring or in a previous year. And I guess just to refresh my memory, the pit tags typically like essentially a scanner goes over it and it kicks back like a, a kind of serial number. Yep. Is that how that works? Yeah. Um, it's, it's basically the same thing as like a microchip that you put in your dog or your cat. Um, they're, it doesn't do like GPS positioning or anything like right. that. It's just yep. kind of like an identification tag. Yep. It's just, it's there. And I'm, I may be wrong here, but I don't think there's any battery life limitations to them because they're not actively doing anything until they're hit by the scanner. Right. And then you just, you swipe the scanner across and it kicks out that code really quick. And then it basically turns back off again. Yeah. And then you cross-reference the code to pick up the data yep. that's been. So you're cruising around at like four and a half miles an hour, you know, looking for these fish or you, you got like one foot on the pedal, like one rod in your hand with like a, <laughs> like like a believer. I could see him. Like you said four miles an hour driving around. And was, <laughs> I had to go straight like to the program. Yeah. So that's exactly my program. 4.5 right there. I was, I was just, uh, I had to break it up a little bit. Uh, it's, it can get a little Western when we, when we find a fish, especially if we're cruising at that speed. Um, it's, it's hard on the motors and it's, it's a lot of stop and go and herky jerky and quick do a donut on the water to try to circle back on a fish that you blew past because you were going too fast. And, and how often can you actually circle around back around and, and find that fish or does it spook off? They stay put a surprising amount. It's sometimes they can be spookier than others, but if, if you don't see a fish kind of out in front of you or off to the side where you're able to get to it rather than kind of quick jam the motor in reverse and make a bunch of noise that way, it's almost always easier to kind of make a big circle and kind of remember where you saw that fish and come at it from a different angle. And usually they're still kind of right in that same area. And is this always at night that you're doing this? We've tried it a little bit during the day on some of like the super clear lakes that have zebra mussels or something, um, especially if you get a flat calm day and we'll do some of the other species during the day. 
Um, so those species, the pike, the bass and the walleye, you're able to just kind of cruise around with the electricity running the whole time and you're able to get those no problem. So we, we've done a little bit of that during the day, um, especially in a lot of our clearer lakes, it ends up being a waste of time to do it during the day just because the fish aren't using that shallow water during the day. They're seeking cover either in super thick weeds or out in deeper water and then they slide back up shallower during the evening and that's when we're able to get them with the electrofishing boat. Now when you say evening, are we talking evening or are we talking nighttime? Uh so like what time do you guys go out and begin your electrofishing? Yeah. Spring and fall we'll get out a little bit early, you know, maybe an hour or so before sunset and then go we usually go like 4 to 6 hours depending on how it's going. Um during the summertime, especially this far north, like it doesn't get dark, dark until about 10 o'clock in, you know, the first part of July up here. So we're going out, you know, we might go out half hour, 45 minutes before the sun goes down, just to make sure we're on good spots before it gets dark. And then, I mean, there's been times when I've kind of crawled, crawled my way back home at three or four o'clock in the morning after putting in a good few hours that night. So and a lot of it like night fishing yeah and it i mean it kind of depends on how far of a drive we have to um last summer we did lake bemidji which was you know it's a mile from my apartment to the lake so uh, those those nights didn't get too bad even if we stayed on the lake a long time but then in 2019 we had a lake that was about an hour and 45 minutes away from town but there really weren't any good hotel options between here and there Mm. so we ended up just bombing back to town every night after we were done and some of those mornings got real real late or real early however you wanted to look at it so this might be like this might be like a crazy question because i know you talked about this pedal and like my question with this stuff is like I've, i've read a lot about these types of surveys and i've always wondered like is there any like serious danger for you out there on this boat? I was like, going to go there. Just, I was like, going to ask that if you didn't. Like, I have to know, like, I, I get that you can, the, if your foot's not on the pedal, you're not throwing electricity into the water, but it's like, dude, that fr- kind of freaks me out a little bit. Like you're just trolling around with a, like an open circuit on the water. Yeah. It's, they make us go through some pretty rigorous training before we're able to go out on the lake and we have to be like CPR certified before we do it. Uh, we carry a defibrillator on the boat just in case something crazy did happen. Whoops. But they also, they have big, like, you know, chest high rails all around the front deck of the boat um, that, you know, keep the people on the front deck from going into the drink. And as long yep. as, yeah, as long as you stay on the boat, it's, you're basically a, a bird on a wire is how they describe it. So you're actually kind of part of the circuit, but you're not completing the circuit. That makes sense. Now, what kind of voltage are we talking? I mean, because in college, things got a little weird and I let someone tase me before. We talking like, <laughs> let's say Ryan's up on the front of the boat. Could I like give him a little friendly zap with the, the thing or would that like light him up? Like, are we so going to get a little weird in here, guys? Yeah, get a little weird real quick. I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember what we run for voltage. I want to say... I mean, are um, we talking deadly or like a friendly tickle if I were to hit Ryan? Uh, it's probably more on the order of deadly than friendly wow. tickle. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're running a fair amount of juice. It's, oh, I mean, wow. you're looking at a couple hundred volts. That's I serious. Think. Yeah. Now, did you have to listen to high voltage on repeat? 
No. Tell them you're doing it. No, we usually <laughs> usually like to just listen to the loons when we're doing that stuff. Uh, it's a good choice. So how does a musky, how does a big musky react to that type of voltage? I mean, you, you already covered the biggest, sur- the bigger surface area, but does it like pop up to the surface? Does it float or like, or, you know, wh- how does the, how does it actually act when it gets hit with this electric current? It is a little bit dependent on the individual fish and also a little bit dependent on water temperature again. Um, so in the warmer water months, uh, look in the summer, a lot of times you'll get fish that really react strongly to it and really make an effort to kind of kick away from it, depending on how close to directly over top of them you were when you turn the electricity on, sometimes they're able to get away and sometimes they kind of kick out of it, but their muscles, basically the, the electricity is causing their muscles to tense up. So they're, depending on how their body is oriented, when their muscles tense up, kind of determines where they go and how they go. So they'll try to kick out of it, but then when the electricity really gets them and their muscles tense up, if they're kind of curved back towards the boat, they end up doing just kind of a big circle circle. (laughs) back to where they were. Whereas if they're pointed away, they curve away from it and then they get out of the electricity and then they come back around and kick away. And then like, if we're over a little bit deeper water, if their nose is pointed down when their muscles tense up, well, then they nose dive down to the bottom and we've got to try to dig them out that way. Otherwise they kind of, when, when we do it right and it works really easy, they just kind of pop up to the surface and it's, you know, a mere seconds that it takes to get the fish in the live well. More often than not, it's not that easy. So we're trying to either fish them out of deeper water, or kind of trying to maneuver the boat a little bit to try to corral the fish in after after the electricity really stuns them i was going to say how long do you have after you get them zapped and they float up and you get them in the boat how long do you have until they kind of wake back up and go crazy again that really depends on water temperature too um cold water it takes them a good couple minutes to come back around warm water actually no sorry that's this is the one where it's the other way around so warm water, um, it usually takes them a little bit longer to recover. Cold water, you can take them out of the electricity, swing them into the boat and put them in the live well, and they're splashing around all over the place <laughs> right away. So it's How long do they stay in the live well? It kind of varies. Um, we, in the spring and the fall, we like to get multiple fish on board before we start doing all of the stomach pumping. Um, just because it's kind of a process to get everything set up and taken back down. Usually in the summer, if we get a muskie on board, we'll work them up right away just because the water temp is a little bit higher and we don't have uh, necessarily like a, an aerator or oxygen tank or anything in the live well. So we want to get those fish in and out as quick as we can. All right. So let's kind of get to the meat and potatoes of, of the subject, so to speak. And that is what do muskies actually eat? You know, what, what can you tell us about a muskies diet on its most basic level? Like what is, what is a muskies preferred type of fish? At the most basic level, I will tell you that muskies eat pretty much whatever they want. Um, just because they can. And so we've seen 
things, you know, on the crazy end of the spectrum, like muskrats and birds and uh, frogs, you know, those big giant suckers or big pike. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I saw one the very first year had 101 different fish in its stomach. And oh, wow. Yeah, 90, 97 of them were perch, kind of about in the two to four inch range. But then it also had a tail of a sucker and two bullheads in its hmm. in its belly. And this wow. was in like early part of May. So that was presumably it was kind of a leftover meal from the big pre-spawn meal that that fish would have had. Or it was immediately post-spawn and starting to feed again. What, so, how big of a muskie was that? Nothing crazy. It seems like a lot of the crazier diets that we've had have come from fish in kind of that mid to maybe upper 40 inch range. But now, could you oh, kind of generalize that those are like the, I don't know what you call it, like the peak of the activity in a muskie? Like they're the growth spurt, so to speak. Yeah, they're kind of, whereas like above that, they're kind of adolescents. That kind of depends too. In some lakes, that's probably about where they max out, um, especially if it's males. Um, You start getting into that forty-inch range or upper forty-inch range with males in a lot of lakes, and that's that's a really impressive male. Um, I think a lot of it is kind of more seasonal based, um, especially in that spring period. I we don't get out super early typically because the fish don't push back up shallow until they're really close to getting ready to spawn but it seems like there's some pretty good feeding activity right below right before they start doing their spawning thing in the spring and then you know it could be a one to two week kind of window where there's pretty minimal feeding activity and we'll catch lots of fish during that time and most of them won't have anything in their stomachs and then you get on the back end of the spawn and they start to kick back up again and start feeding a little bit more heavily now do you think uh like would that be something to expand on this survey to like oh i guess you guys did it all summer pretty much uh, but or did you notice a trend in different uh different meal types relative to you know that spawn pre-spawn and then as you get further away from it right are they eating something uh, do you mean are they eating something different like is there a different type of diet bluegills bluegills in the spring crappies mid morning or you know midsummer and then right so i guess to kind of back up just a hair um the way we looked at musky diets we calculated this metric of diet importance or relative importance of diet Mm -hmm. items so basically what that does is it it combines a measure of how often does this prey show up in any musky diet how many how many of the prey items fall into this category and then how much of the mass is made up by this category and it kind of combines it into a nice single number so that you can make comparisons that don't give too much weight to you know that one big sucker that made up a lot of the biomass or those lots of small perch that made up a lot of the number it kind of tries to balance those out okay so that's how we looked at it and i'm i have one of my graphs 
from a presentation that I gave a couple of weeks ago, pulled up right now. And we saw you had RI as the Y axis. Yep. Yep. So we saw, we definitely saw more importance of perch in the spring. And then one of the kind of surprising things, at least on my end, um, invertebrates, invertebrate prey items were actually one of the more important prey items for muskies in the summer. Okay. Um, part of that is due to low sample size. So in the hot water months, especially up here, it seems like the fish are either buried in thick weeds or they're spending a lot of their time kind of on the first break or off the first break in deeper water. Kind of out and of the electroshocking range. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's out of the range of where we're able to collect a good number of fish and then we end up seeing quite a few empty stomachs during that time too just because of the kicked up metabolism they're digesting faster so you're even if they eat a meal you have a shorter window to catch that fish before it looks like it hasn't eaten but so Um, how do you get a fish with like 99 or 100 and some prey fish you know fish in their stomach and then one with almost nothing i mean it would seem to me like that's a that's kind of a feast or famine type of situation that one that had 97 perch in its stomach a couple of the perch were still kicking around when they came out of the (laughs) stomach so they were they were about as fresh as fresh can get um the other stuff like the bullhead and the sucker tail those had been in there a while and the water temperature was pretty cold so those could have been in there for you know maybe pushing up to a week but those those perch were about as fresh as you can get so the lake that I fish, I just, while I'm, while I'm sitting here, I just looked up on the fish and boat commission just to get some numbers on, you know, what, what exactly is in it. And, you know, in terms of a trap net survey, there were 25 walleye, 137 bluegill, 43 black crappy, 23 pumpkin seed, 50 rock bass, 1,612 yellow perch. Just the, the abundance of yellow perch is just jumps out at me right there, just based on what we've been talking about here. Yeah, and that's that's actually something that other people within Minnesota are looking at right now. Um, uh, a lot of the standard surveys that Minnesota DNR does, they're typically looking at summer gillnet catches instead of the spring musky trap nets. But they've seen a pretty precipitous decline in the number of yellow perch that are showing up in the gill nets. And so they're doing a little bit of research now looking at why that is. And some of their preliminary results are kind of indicating that there might be actually kind of slower growth and lower size on some of those perch in a lot of lakes. So they're the way the gill nets work is the fish swims into the net and they get tangled up and then they stay there until the biologist comes to pull them out. Well, if the perch is small enough, it just swims straight through the net and you never even know it was there. Right. So, but yes, it even in here or over this way, there's, I mean, the numbers of perch in a lot of the lakes that we've been on is pretty astounding compared to a lot of the other fish. And that's, that kind of drives a lot of the trends that we've seen too, just with the importance that yellow perch prey or play as a prey source for not only muskie, but also for the other predators. Do you follow the yellow perch at all in terms of trying to find these other, these prey, you know, uh, the predatory fish? It's, I mean, it, 
usually if you find a big school of perch, there's something with teeth not too far away from it. Um, they kind of tend to spawn about the same time as muskies, if not a little bit early up in a lot of our lakes. And then a lot of times they'll head out towards deeper water, either kind of more submerged weed beds or kind of out to some mud basins or some offshore structure. So it's, it's a little harder for us to kind of follow them around throughout the year, but we definitely see predators around when we find perch in the springtime. Now perch, are they a schooling fish? Yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll tend to hang out in pretty big groups for the most part. Okay. So I was, I don't want to get like too far ahead here, but I noticed that uh, you cited a previous study done that was saying that muskie typically prefer uh, fish without spines and stuff. I forget what the term is for them, but now wouldn't that seem like a, I was thinking about this while I was reading it too. Wouldn't it seem a little contradictory though? That I mean, the muskie, they seem to prefer like the yellow perch, like in most scenarios, but at the same time, they don't prefer fish with spines. Like, do you think that's out of necessity? They don't have like, something to choose from without spines or yeah so a lot of those studies where they say that a fish preferred something most of those studies happen in a lab so they'll they'll basically have oversized aquariums set up with whatever target research species that they're looking at and then they'll dump a scoop of food in the tank with them and it'll be an even distribution of okay we're gonna dump in 10 bluegills and 10 shiners or 10 shad Mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever the other prey fish is. You've got one with spines, you've got one without how many of each one gets eaten. And then you do that enough different times. And if there's, if they say that there was a preference, that means that there was a pretty distinct trend that they were, they were eating Mm -hmm. a lot more of the ones without spines. Um, We have Cisco's in some of our lakes up here a fair amount, which would be a soft raid, uh, kind of no spines. And then suckers would fall into that category as well. Um, what about gizzard shad? We don't get a ton of gizzard shad up here. Um, I think kind of more the Southern part of the state and maybe some of the bodies of water connected to some of the river systems might have more, but most of our study lakes were kind of in the North central to Northwest part of the state. And we really don't see many gizzard shad there. Because I know Nick had mentioned, you know, we don't have Cisco's here, but we have what, Nick? Alewife, alewives and... And gizzard shad. And then we also have threadfin shad. Those, uh, and those are all soft, soft raid fish. Right. Yep. yep. In doing the gastric lavages, uh, is it easier to do them when you know, when it's a soft raid fish or based on the, the digestive, you know, that we talked about earlier, does it really not matter? You know, does a sunfish or something really spiky come up this, the exact same or, or, or just as easily? If both, if both fish had been consumed relatively recently, the soft raid fish without spines is going to come up easier than something that has spines, whether that's a sunfish or a crappie or a bullhead or any of those that have spines, the, the fish without spines come out a lot easier. But yeah, as we were talking about earlier, the, the digestive juices really kick in pretty quick. And so even for something with, you know, 
like a larger bullhead can have pretty substantial spines off sticking off of both sides. And it doesn't typically take a whole lot of time for those to get broken down to the point that they'll either not be able to stick out uh, stiff enough to kind of do any or to get caught or they'll eventually just kind of fall off the side of the fish and then the bullhead is i mean that basically turns into a spineless fish at that point here's a quick question that i'm just thinking of because we're getting into uh like i don't i guess this is weird to ask but so like musky poop is like (laughs) It's like ahead, Nick. I knew it would come poops. to this eventually. Yeah, it's like everyone poops, Nick. And is that just like a remnant of those cartilaginous like bits of the fish that just uh, don't quite get fully digested? Yeah, the we've had some interesting poops show up on the on the boat. Um, the one I remember the most was uh, the fall of my first year we had one that we, we did the stomach pumping and nothing came out. And then I looked at my hand that was down by the tail of the fish and there was fur on my hand. Well, I go back to our data sheet and two nights prior to that, we had caught that same fish and it puked up a muskrat. Okay. So they, they definitely pass some kind of solid remnants of whatever it is they're eating it could be fish scales it could be fur it could be feathers it could be you know any number of different things but you you definitely see some remnants of whatever they're eating coming out that end as well right i can tell you the last last muskie i caught i got i got pooped on pretty bad (laughs) and it definitely wasn't solid at all and that ended Mm -hmm. up everywhere in all my I have a, uh, <laughs> I have a lucky vial of musky poop in my rod locker in my boat. That's Gross. no joke. Okay, I gotta just say this, dude. You're walking around asking people to tase you, and you're carrying musky poop in the weirdest. It's places. lucky, I'm telling you. I'm starting to worry about you a little bit. Yeah, it's it's like uh, what it like some kind of magic dust, you know. You're not re- sprinkling that, sprinkling that in your cereal in the morning. It'll make you a better this, musky fisherman. You're not using this as moisturizer, are you? Because I feel like I might. I might start a whole line. We're starting to cross a line here. Look, see, Owen's not here. Every time Owen leaves, we get in big time trouble. It's like Dad uh, leaves. We're in, we always we're go to the, the bathroom room. stuff. How'd, how'd you get stomach acid burns all over your face? Oh, well, I wanted to ask you earlier, Camden. You we. we we were kind of talking about the whole musky attacking the kid with his foot in the water thing. And it made me think of like the stories Jeremy Wade tells again, like, Oh, you had a shiny bracelet on or whatever. Like that the pike ate like a license plate. Have you come across any weird inanimate objects when you did your lavages? Uh, some for the most part, it's from bass that we see that. Um, so one of the, one of the weirder ones we got this past year was we had a bass that coughed up a chicken leg. <laughs> Basically, like somebody went through the KFC drive-through and chucked their chucked the chicken bone out their window into the little channel that the fish was in, and then we we got it shortly after that. But the the craziest one that we had, um, we had like this little tiny piece of like round glass that a bass had coughed up well it was actually the cover of the headlamp lens 
from my intern that had lost it the night before when we were out on the lake. So it fell into the water and the fish must have seen the reflection of the sun off of it or something and and slurped it up. And we, we ended up with it back in the boat the next night. That's wild. Have you ever, did you have any uh, fishing gear recovered from any of the muskies? Not from any of the muskies. Um, A few of the bass, and then maybe like a small handful combined of the pike and walleye. We'll see like a little jig head or some soft plastic bass lures or something. I have a small plastic bag in my desk drawer at school that's got some of that stuff stuck in it. But we've also seen like if we get fish that get captured in gill nets, uh, we'll cut the stomachs out of those after the fish are already dead. And so in some of those like pike and walleye, you'll see just like a bare live bait hook that is stuck in the stomach or something and okay. so we'll see that i mean does it look like too. does it look like the angling had killed those fish no it doesn't and it we were we were actually talking about this at school today too um it looked like somebody had cut the line off that hook and then kind of threw the fish back and then i mean in those gill net surveys the fish has to be swimming and alive in order to be caught in those gill nets so the fish was alive at the time that it swam into the net that's not to say there weren't other issues arising depending on how long that hook had been in the stomach but at the time that the fish was captured it was still alive and when you pulled those hooks out of the stomach, I mean, everybody here is like, oh, if it's deep, just cut the hook, it'll rot out, you know, from what you saw, did it look like the hooks were rotting or did they look still kind of pretty well intact or? It was about 50, yeah. 50. Some of, some of them the were pretty, of... yeah, some of them were pretty rotted out and some of them looked like you could tie it on and catch another fish on it. So, but <laughs> I even... mean, from, from your knowledge of, you know, inspecting muskie stomachs in their digestive system, do you, do you think a muskie can digest a big muskie hook? Like that will dissolve it to the point where it won't damage the fish? I think like Camden said, it depends on the, the yeah. chemical makeup of the hook mm-hmm. more than. And it's even, I mean, even if it's maybe a lower quality hook that is a little bit more prone to rusting, Something like that is going to take a while. Um, Just to kind of give you an example, a lot of the fish that we identify out of the stomachs, we're identifying from the, basically the ear bones that the fish have, the otoliths. Um, It's what a lot of biologists use to age fish. So those are the bones that get the growth rings like a tree. And those are, they're not really bones. They're just calcium buildup essentially is what they are, but those will stay in a fish's stomach beyond the point of the rest of the body. So we've had fish that basically cough up like a couple scales and those bones, and then we're able to identify whatever the prey was based on the shape of that bone. Um, So it, something that solid is going to take quite a while to break down. That's not to say it, is going to cause damage necessarily. It's all kind of going to depend on chance at that point, depending on where the hook ends up and which direction it's facing. But it's, it is possible that it could stay there long enough to break down, but it, it would take a while. I feel like very rarely are you hooking a muskie in the stomach too, unless you're doing some like 1990s yeah, live, live bait, bait kind of yeah. technique. 
you can hook them deep, but I mean, you got to hook them deep, deep to hook them down, like yeah, deeper than the throat. I mean, so you got to watch Camden, him. What got to watch what's... him husky jerks? Yeah, you got to be sleeping yeah. if you're husky. <laughs> you watch jerking, him you husky hook him in the stomach. <laughs> they lie slurping things right up. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Aaron. What's the biggest prey item that you regurgitated out of a musky? The longest one, I think, was like a 24-inch pike. Um, those fish, kind of those hammer handle pike, those essentially turn into like spaghetti noodles for Slime. the big muskies, though. So that's, I mean, it's the length part of it is pretty impressive, but they're not a super big-bodied fish. No. So some of those like 20 to 21 inch suckers are pretty impressive. Um, we've gotten multiple muskrats, multiple birds. Um, the birds seem to be kind of impressive because some of these big birds can have big wingspans. Yeah. Yep. So one of the, one of the ones from this past fall had eaten a coot, an American coot that was pretty sizable. Um, I have a couple pictures where you can see kind of the, town or the foot of the of the coot after we had pulled it out and i mean it's it's not a small bird at that point so how big was that musky mid to upper 40s again yeah it's yeah so that was a that was cool to see i think it's your closing slide and your uh your powerpoint there the kind of the unique stuff that you, yeah. you found yeah but i've i've been out on the water and seen you know ducklings just disappear yeah and it's, you know i mean you you draw the conclusion in your head but to see it kind of confirmed by science is really yeah. cool to see yep yeah we actually we took a gopro video of that coot coming back up um we were getting ready to work the fish up and i looked in the tank and saw feathers floating around and i i knew for sure i hadn't scooped a bird up while we were electro fishing <laughs> so i figured it was probably a good idea to get the camera out for that one do you ever uh, end up hitting uh, like diver diving birds and stuff with the with the electrodes or? We've never hit a diving bird. Um, every once in a while, you'll get like a muskrat that swims into the okay. field. Um, they basically have a pretty similar response to the fish at that point. Um, they just they get kind of stuck in in the electrical field just with how their muscles contract. So you kind of have to let off the electricity to let them swim away from the boat a little bit. But what about I, loons? You ever get, I mean, cause loons are known to go underwater and travel for, you know, a hundred yards or so at least. Yeah. Yeah. They, they can definitely cover water under underwater or cover ground underwater, but we've never had one kind of swim up on us while we've been doing any of the electro fishing. I think between the noise and the lights in the middle of the night, they kind of give us plenty of space. It's no secret you're out there, I guess, when right. you have generators right. buzzing and lights. Yeah. And... So well, I found a really interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. I was just you were touching on that big pike that muskie ate. I mean, I found it really interesting that behind perch, like pike, were kind of another hot commodity as far as the muskies preferred forage. And I, I kind of always thought that was just like wives' tail, like just guys being like, "I caught a pike on him or a muskie on my pike." But I mean, there might be some some weight to that. Yeah, there is. And that was one of kind of the interesting trends that we saw. Um, so I mentioned Cisco earlier, the way we kind of set up our study design was kind of centered around the interactions between Muskie and Cisco. 
Um, so the DNR biologist that I've been working with, he kind of did a pilot study on a different lake close to Bemidji shortly before we started this one. And they, they do it a little bit differently. They do, it's called stable isotope analysis. So essentially they're able to use the chemistry of tissue samples from fish and other aquatic organisms and able to see who eats who and how much they eat uh, throughout the whole food web. Um, so they collect samples from everything from kind of the invertebrates that live on in the sediment at the bottom of the lake all the way up to the muskies. But what they found is that muskies were getting about 50% of their energy from ciscos in that lake. And so we, we were looking at how lakes with cisco and without cisco differed. And one of the things we saw is that those, those pike ended up being a pretty significant prey source for muskies in lakes where cisco weren't present. So we saw- I think, it's, I, think I also noted that that also happened to- result in heavier pike yeah so that's that's kind of a different related study um they they were looking at kind of the the standard survey gillnet catches throughout the state and so they had i think they were looking at 36 different lakes they had some lakes with muskie and some lakes without and some lakes with cisco and some lakes without and basically what they found is there was a pretty marked increase in the number of pike in the in lakes kind of throughout the state but in lakes where there were muskie the pike populations stayed pretty pretty even they didn't increase nearly as much and then when they looked at the the relative weight of the pike in those lakes the relative weight was a little bit better in the lakes with muskies than it was with in the lakes without so it seems like there's there's some si some sort of kind of predatory control there between the muskies and the pike where maybe the muskies are either out competing or directly feeding on some of those smaller pike and then that results in maybe some lower numbers but a little bit better size on the fish. That's something right. that's it could, I guess in certain ways it could strengthen the the gene pool so to speak because you're you're they're picking off the weak ones and it's only the the stronger bigger ones that are able to procreate and uh you know creates bigger better fish i guess there's that's, that's there's that theory yeah that might have a little bit to do with it i think more so you're just eliminating some of the mouths that have to be fed so there's <laughs> more more food to go around for the fish that are remaining than there was when there were more pike. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the leading theory on how that mechanism works, but there could be a little bit of a genetic component there as well. It's definitely like a strictly, you know, just my personal observations, but it seems like here lakes, cause we have quite a few lakes that have only muskies and no pike and the lakes that have both the quality of the fish seems better like larger size of both of them okay we end up with like if there's only muskies and no pike the muskies don't seem to get quite as big okay That's like conyot here seems to have both big pike and big muskies right what about the like dota can't, what find a, can't find a 40 inch muskie 
the Dota has Pike, but I've like the only Pike I've ever seen was a literally maybe a 16 inch. I wouldn't even call it a hammer. Wouldn't even call it a hammer handle. I mean, that that doesn't even quite qualify as a hammer handle. You know what's really interesting too to me, and I mean this kind of I guess it depends on the size of the lake where where it's at. But if you take a lake like Chautauqua up in New York, I would say like the primary forage for those fish are probably going to be perch, right? Like perch and maybe the white bass or whatever they are in there. So. You know, is it just the size of that lake in general, like the amount of like weed structure, like the is that that you're getting a lot, like all different sizes of fish? Like, is that is it like is a lake like what we're talking about here in Edinburgh, PA, the size of that with the amount of fish that's in there, is that what's restricting the size or is it more the diet? Like, I'm just kind of curious what the what the opinion is there. Cause if we're not seeing like 45 inch fish or 40 inch fish up on a specific lake, is that because of the size of the lake? Is that the diet or is that just the amount of fish that are in there? Okay. So to correlate that, I guess Camden on the, the you sampled eight lakes up there in Minnesota, right? Uh, we ended up doing 10. So in my, in my thesis, we had eight lakes and then we were kind of wrapping up the other two lakes um at that point so that's stuff we've been working on yet this winter okay so we have some lakes here in in western pa that ryan's referring to some that are smaller you know like edinburgh canadota which are small natural lakes edinburgh's natural right it's Nick? got it's elevated it's got a dam on it but it's was well natural. i mean nothing is nothing right. is necessarily natural but i mean it's yeah. it's not an impoundment I think the L it's like eight feet deeper than it would naturally be. Okay. So, you know, we have, we have some of these smaller natural lakes, but then there are also larger impoundments like pima tuning and, you know, so I guess what, I think what Ryan is asking is where are you seeing bigger fish in the, you know, the bigger bodies of water or the smaller bodies of water, are they just not able to produce as big a fish as the, the bigger bodies of water? Or does it correlate to a, a forage base or right. you know, combination? Right. Of that? So for sure, the biggest fish that we've seen have come out of Lake Bemidji. And so far that's been the biggest lake that we've sampled. Okay. Um, in terms of a correlation beyond that, I don't know. I don't think there's really a strong correlation where the average size is better, the bigger the lake is. I think it kind of varies and there, there could be some, uh, right, quite a few moving parts to make. A- yeah. Quite a few moving parts. And then, I mean, we're also looking at lakes predominantly that are stocked. We did look at one lake that has natural reproduction, okay. but a lot of times up around here, what we're seeing with some of our stocked lakes is that after initial stocking, you'll get, really impressive growth rates on the fish and they'll grow to just kind of stupid dumb big sizes really fast and then those fish are you know they're living 20 to 25 years in some of these lakes and so they're staying really big and we're not really getting a ton of additional recruitment from the additional stockings and so you're so the other fish aren't getting that big because there's already these big 
these already big muskies there? It's not even that they're not getting that big. It's that we're not seeing younger fish really. So in some of these lakes where they're stocked, um, we're seeing where the fish kind of grow to their maximum size. And then eventually they settle into kind of this, this state where there's a really low number of really big fish and you're only, I mean, you're not turning those fish over very quickly just because the mortality rates are so low at that point. They kind so of they're kind of in an equilibrium. And right. Yep. So they're, maintain. they're kind of maintaining there with low numbers, but big size, and you're not getting a ton of kind of those smaller fish. So what's happening? What's happening to those other fish? Do we think? We've seen a little bit of cannibalism in the muskies. Um, not a ton, but enough that that could be a small part of it um part of it could be just limiting forage because at the time that the muskies are stocked they're basically limited in what they can eat to a lot of the same things that the bass and the pike and the walleye are eating as well so it's we're not really sure what the what the reasoning is there but it is a trend that we've kind of been seeing here in minnesota now, do you guys typically do like fall stockings or? Yep. No? Yep. They stock fall fingerlings. So the fish are, you know, kind of eight to 12 inches, depending on how the growth rates work. Yeah. And then so I think Pennsylvania has recently in the last, what, like maybe four years or so gone to. I think doing they started trialing it as far back as like 2004. Ten, yeah. I think it was about 10 years ago that they started try. They did it like every other year where they would do instead of fall fingerlings, they'll do spring yearlings. And they, if I'm not Ryan, you know, you're, you've spent a lot more time with, with uh, Jared than I have, but I know the mortality rate or the survival rate was something like three to one or four to one of the yearlings, as opposed to the fingerlings. And so they were only allowed that you could only stock maybe half as many, but you were having almost a three to one odds of, of survival out of those, uh, the yearlings. Yeah. And I know Iowa DNR stocks spring yearlings as well with their musky management. Um, I mean, they're like 14 to 16 inches when they get stocked here in PA. Yep. That's about what Iowa is kicking out to. So I'm not sure I've not worked with any of the hatchery folks here in Minnesota. So I'm not sure if it's a space limiting factor where they're not able to kind of house those fish through the winter, or if it's money to maintain the feed or water temperatures, or I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure what the reasoning um, is. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of issues. Like, we, yeah. It sounds pretty uh, intensive as far as facilities. Yeah. And look at how much we have to raise, you know, just for minnows and whatnot for, for Pennsylvania right. here, for you know, our, our local musky months. clubs all do do fundraisers just to, just to get minnows to feed to these, uh, you know, these yearlings. Yeah. I think they're somewhere. That's usually somewhere between six to 10 grand. This is yeah. like the other, the other cool thing about this is just kind of talking through that some of those fish that were stocked were actually bigger than that too. Like some of them were hitting like 18, 19 inches, which, you know, 
it's it's kind of funny because whenever I looked at some of those fish, I was like, that's gonna be a future super tanker. You know, like <laughs> it's like that's the one fish that's just crushing these minnows in the in the in, in the uh, troughs that they have. And then I don't know, it's just I, I feel like that three to one was accurate though, Owen. Like I, I feel like we're getting just that much better survival rate, but I, I, I have all this stuff written down. I, I'd have to go back and look. I have a bunch of notes from Jared. But I don't think we're seeing gigantic fish. You know, and I know we're not far enough into that yeah. yearling stocking, you know, to really be able to see that. But, you know, you hear all these stories about mill lacks out in Minnesota. And how the stocking had made it to this super lake, so to speak. And then all of a sudden, the Minnesota DNR makes whatever changes and they're no longer stocking it the way they are. And so these fish are just falling off, kind of the falling off the face of the earth. I guess what I don't understand is the, the biology wise, you know, what is it about a lake like that that creates these gigantic muskies as opposed to Canadota Lake, which is part of the the pennsylvania uh broodstock program you know which gets more more stocking and you know heavier stocking so why isn't it pumping out these you know monster fish what is it about mill lacks or some of these other lakes that that create these bigger fish so i think part of that you kind of have in most cases you have a trade-off between numbers and size so lakes essentially have a carrying capacity where they're able to support x number of pounds of fish regardless of what the species is or how old the fish is they can support a certain number of pounds of fish throughout a yearly cycle within that lake and that's i mean that's dictated by the size of the lake that's dictated by the nutrient inputs into the lake um, different kind of physical and biological characteristics of the lake itself outside of the fish populations but then that biomass that the lake can carry is then divided up among kind of the species within the lake and then within the species it's divided up among kind of the age and the size classes so if you ideally you would have a balanced system where you're having just a few fish that survive to a really old age and grow really big. You've got a lot of fish that are kind of peaking at that kind of reproductive peak there whenever, you know, maybe a couple years beyond maturity, and then you're getting good natural reproduction in all of your fish species. But when you start, you know, playing with stocking rates or you, maybe you have a big fish die off or maybe the septic systems around the lake get changed and you're not getting the nutrient inputs that you were getting in previous years. That's a big thing. Yeah. That's funny. You say that because the lake that I fish, I remember growing up and we would absolutely kill largemouth bass. Like, I mean, like there were so many largemouth bass in this little lake, but there was just tons of all this vegetation and weird stuff. And they basically they went to a, a public sewer system 
and got rid of all septic tanks and everything around the lake was cleaned up, so to speak. And you can't find uh, like, I mean, you can't catch bass for some reason in this lake anymore. And now you can catch muskies and other things. But the for some reason, I found that whenever they did that, they cleaned up the lake, so to speak. It was like the largemouth bass population went off of a cliff. Yeah. And it, I mean, some of that stuff, I'm, I'm, I would venture to guess that there's still some bass in the lake. It might just be that they're hanging out in different spots or they're using kind of different structural elements that maybe, maybe if the weed beds kind of shrunk a little bit after the nutrient inputs were decreased, they had to move around a little bit, but they're also, I mean, that's helping them survive to an age where they're able to reproduce so if they're not able to hide in those weed beds anymore, they might be getting picked off prior to that. And then, like you were saying, if you see, I mean, maybe you see a decrease in the bass populations, but then the musky populations tick up a little bit. So that's kind of what I was getting at with the biomass. Like you can, ha- if you can have goes up and down. Yeah. If you can have 500 fit or 500 pounds of fish in a small lake, let's say just to make it an easy round number. Well, that means you can either have 500 one pound fish or you can have 10 50 pound fish. Right. So it's, it, there's definitely a trade off there with kind of the number and the size of the fish that a lake is able to support. And so, those... what makes a super lake like Mill Lacks, <clears throat> like what did the DNR do? It, and, and I'm not saying that like you have the answer to this question. Like I'm, I'm speaking out loud here. Like, what is it about that lake structure and how does somebody, how does a DNR recreate that type of success? Because the, the fishing on Vermilion Lake uh, Mill Lacks, you know, these were like legendary never to be seen again types of fisheries, both in size and quantity. And, but it, now we can't seem to recreate it anywhere. And every, every, I mean, I think we can all agree that science is more advanced now than it was 25 years ago. I so, think like, like Camden was saying there with the, you know, I mean the hundred or whatever, 500, one pound fish versus fifth or no, 10, 50 pound fish. Even if you have those 10, 50 pound, well, your first fish you put in, they're going to get to that 50 pound size then they're never going to get out competed by one pound fish. So those 50, they're like the ruling class. Right. And And that's, so like, I mean, a lot of lakes around here are stocked with walleye, but those fish are getting pulled out by people looking for a fish fry pretty frequently. So you're getting pretty quick turnover in a lot of those lakes. You're not seeing that with the muskies. So you're seeing a lot of the, the top end fish that are hanging out for a long time. And then eventually a handful of them will die due to natural causes, or maybe they got hooked really bad on a big O's bucktail or something. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then that maybe, the creates, that maybe creates a little <laughs> bit of room for some of those smaller fish to, to fill that gap, but you're not seeing that turnover like you are on some of your other species. So you're seeing these populations that are kind of maxed out with a lot of those bigger fish. From my understanding, like Mill Lacks never had muskies in it. And then they were stocked. 
that I'm not a hundred percent sure of. Or I think, I, yeah, they, I, from what I understand, kind of the heyday of Malax in that kind of early to mid two thousands era kind of coincided with that first initial stocking okay. reaching adult sizes. So you were getting kind of that first class of fish growing up to being those adult fish that people right. are looking to catch. And there were, there were lots of them because when you stock those fall fingerlings without much competition on the top end, they, they do have pretty good survival rates. So that would make sense. I mean, yeah. to say like, Hey, if, if there were not muskies in that lake and you added them and added a very strong, you know, bulky strain and that strain just kind of went ape shit in in the lake and just kind of ate everything they would kind of become a super fish yeah you think about it like you know big fish are on big fish spots but if there's no other big fish then those little fish get to grow up on big fish spots and And become big fish right yeah the, the prime spots of the lake they've got you know the best habitat to to eat and feed and grow and that's a good point nick i never really thought about that like on a small lake you know if there's only say three prime spots for a big fish to sit and you know the you can only have so many alphas in in a certain area you know that would make sense that hey you the bigger the lake the more prime spots even if you had a gigantic lake and you only had three prime spots that might only be room for three truly alpha i guess we should probably they're not because they're not alpha males with muskies they would be what's the what's the equivalent of the female like the the fucking the queen bee yeah the queen bee it's kind of my thought i don't know i don't know if it's right or wrong i'm probably wrong most of the time i'm wrong so no that makes sense to me yeah a lot of it is i mean it's competition and sharing of prey resources that kind of dictates how many fish are able to survive and then how big those fish are able to get and they did so you look at a lake like nipissing you know and which is literally uh, it's a 12 the average lake and the average depth is 12 feet or 13 feet so there are rock humps and there are you know there are shelves and there there's habitat everywhere so that makes sense that hey if you have more big fish spots you know you have the exact same square footage or acreage of a, of a body of water if you have minimal spots you're going to have minimal of the gigantic muskies that are the absolute like big berthas of the lake yeah and it's i mean yeah, yeah <laughs> potentially a little i think bit, the I thing mean, you thing to think about too is like you just got to remember how dynamic every lake system is. Mm-hmm. There's so many controls to, to every, you know, aquatic ecosystem. That... Right. Listen, so many I think different that's factors. A good, that's a good point right there. We're talking a lot of hypotheticals about Malax and Nipissing and we got Camden right. here and I'm thinking maybe we should yeah. do a little deeper dive into this. Camden's thing, trying to know? stay si- scientific. And trying just... to dial it in and get a little, you know, cause he, I'm sure he's a data man. He doesn't want to talk about the hypotheticals. So I was wondering, I mean, what are some from your thesis, you know, I mean, we know you studied what, are, what are muskies eating, you know, in the most part, 
was there any like real head scratch or data that you came across or like anything that you expected you know like what were some like standout things good question during this so i guess the first one that kind of jumps out to me um we only saw cisco show up in the diets in two of the lakes and only in like five or six individual fish that how many how many of the lakes had cisco uh six no four of the ten had cisco so So, only two of those had yep so two two lakes we didn't see any cisco consumption by muskies and then two of the lakes one of the lake there was one muskie that had eaten a cisco and then the other lake lake bemidji actually had four or five of them that had but they didn't didn't ever show up until fall and even then it was fairly minimal compared to kind of what we were thinking now lake bemidji was the biggest lake that you sampled right yep and it seems like lake bemidji has a pretty good cisco population i've run into them personally a few times trying to fish for perch and walleye through the ice especially so seems like they've got pretty decent numbers now Um, are cisco like a white fish that would spawn in the fall yep so cisco will spawn way late in the fall there's even they're maybe doing a little bit of spawning even under the first little skim of ice on in some years but yep they're spawning in the fall and then i think i want to say their eggs actually kind of lay through the winter and then they don't have i was gonna say where do they where do they lay their eggs that's a great question and i don't think anyone has a great answer (laughs) um they've done a lot of work on that kind of stuff in the great lakes looking at where where those fish are spawning um one of the other grad students that's at Bemidji now um is doing some Cisco stuff and they went out and tried to set egg traps in a couple different lakes last fall and in two different lakes they set a handful of traps and I don't think they got any Cisco eggs I mean are they they trying for is this like pelagic or pelagic I don't know yeah yep they're so they are pelagic throughout the year um presumably they lay their eggs either in like shallow sand flats or shallower rock reefs or maybe some weed beds i i don't think anyone really has a great answer on where they spawn especially in the inland lakes that's what i saw again i'm stretching but i saw a neat uh study on the with the glados uh telemetry surveys on whitefish in the i think it was georgian bay and it was kind of neat to see them kind of congregate in the fall yeah and show the kind of you know prime prime uh spawning habitat there yep so now nick in in georgian bay are there cisco in georgian bay yeah i would assume so yes because that's a very cold water you know my buddy up there caught two through the ice today yeah yeah jerry no uh, other friend larissa's friend's uh, fiance Camden, you were kind of saying I, maybe i misunderstood but you kind of thought that that was one of the reasons maybe cisco didn't make up as much of their diet as you expected was just kind of their difficulty to find and kind of where they hang and yeah and it's so because cisco kind of spend most of their their time out over deeper water um any of the muskies that might be chasing those bait schools around are basically 
safe from us throughout the majority of the year right um if like if they grabbed one and then slid up onto a sand flat to digest and we found it that night that would be where we could see it but um, you're not electroshocking one out in 80 foot 80 feet right yeah i mean we've we've thought about it a little bit but it's hard to justify spending time cruising over open water like that (laughs) with with maybe a chance that you'll see one and then with that one you have probably a less than 50 percent chance that you actually get it in the boat catch that rocky fish up at the surface yeah exactly so that Um, could just be like a sampling thing too maybe the yeah and so part of like part of this project i'm actually only about half of the broader broader project they're doing that stable isotope analysis on kind of the same set of lakes that I looked at and then a few additional lakes as well. And so because they're using tissue samples and those are integrated over a longer time frame, they're, they might be able to see uh, Cisco pop out as a potential prey source in some of those lakes or even in some of the lakes where we're not seeing the Cisco show up just because they're able those isotopes that they're able to look at the diet over a span of months to close to a year. Whereas we're looking at, you know, maybe two weeks on the top end, if it's super cold. Now you mentioned that the Cisco seemed to show up more in the fall sampling. Do you think that correlated with that, with the Cisco's moving into kind of your more, your sampling area? Yeah, I, it does seem like we see, spawning fish show up as prey pretty regularly throughout the year so usually about the first time we or the first couple times we start going out the pike are done spawning the walleye are probably spawning the perch are probably spawning and then the muskies are maybe spawning maybe a little bit before spawning but that's when we see a lot of perch show up in the diets and then you get a little bit later into the year, you start seeing maybe a few more sunfish or crappies. Um, we did see a pretty decent number of suckers in the diets in the spring as well. And they spawn about the same time as the, probably between the pike and the walleye is when they will spawn. I've heard and- people say that because pike spawn prior to muskies, that if, you know, that, that the musky fry will be eaten by young pike anything to that i'm sure there is um we our methods aren't great at sampling diets of that small of a fish right so it would be really hard to tell without you know probably just scooping up a big school of those fry after they hatch and then cut them open and hopefully you can identify what's in their stomach at that point but I'm sure there is a little bit of truth to that. And that's, I mean, that's probably how this fish that looks like a muskie, but doesn't grow nearly as big and isn't nearly as much of an apex predator as the muskie has been able to kind of co-evolve in some of those similar lakes is they're able to spawn a little earlier and get that jump start that they need to be able to survive. Now that's a good, that's a good thought. I didn't think about that. Like that, that early on, you know, say a pike was eating, you know, a, fr- a pike fry was eating musky fry early on in its life and then transitioned to yellow perch. 
would that be something that would be detectable using that stable isotope analysis? If it, you know, yeah. So the time frame you're looking at there, I've heard anywhere from like three months on the short end to about a year on the long end. Of because what it's what you it, could detect. Yeah, and it's okay. basically it's however long the tissue takes to replace itself. Okay. Um, and so they're they're not necessarily able to look at all oh, this musky eight five ciscos and three suckers and 10 perch or whatever right. it is it's how much of their diet contributed to the tissue that's being built that would so, probably be exceptionally hard in early growth stages because they're growing right. so fast that... yeah so there's a lot of turnover there um that i mean you might be able to detect something if they're really keying in on one specific prey but if they're kind of just eating whatever falls in front of their face at that point it's it's probably going to get pretty messy right i was just curious how yeah how narrowed in you could get with that it's a pretty neat i mean we kind of cut you off there was there any other than like the cisco thing was there any other like head scratcher things that popped up or kind of shocking things that happened or i mean did everything pretty much go as you planned or i saw the photo of the little alligator snapper what was that did that come out of a muskie <laughs> no that was from a bass that was okay. actually we got two two little baby snapping turtles out of different bass so those those were a little bit surprising um sounds like those wacky largemouth bass will eat just about anything oh, yeah like yeah they will um, they, they eat a lot of crayfish, the tiger shark, the tiger sharks of, yeah, <laughs> license plates and gas cans. Yeah. And meanwhile, you got bass guys out here fighting over whether their watermelon fleck or their tequila sunrise tube is going to do the trick. And you got bass eating lenses off of headlamps. And- yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I miss bass fishing. That, that's a little easier than what back we're doing when, now. Back when life was easy. Back when life was more <laughs> simple. Bass fishing is is the wheel of fortune. Musky fishing is jeopardy. All right. There you go. Well, I know one another thing for me that made me, maybe I just misunderstood it, but it made me scratch my head, is that uh, one of the, a quote from like the whole thesis is that diet overlap, uh, here, wait, let me find it here. So the northern pike and walleye had relatively high levels of dietary overlap, whereas muscalunge had low levels of dietary overlap with other predators. Can you like touch on that one? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, Weird. I so, had that sentence. I had that same thing highlighted. Yeah. So that's a it's a different metric that we look at. Um, it basically looks at the number or the biomass of the prey of different prey categories and then you uh, you calculate an overlap metric that ranges from zero to one so an overlap level of one would mean they're eating the same thing all the time exactly the same overlap of zero means they're not sharing any resources and then pretty much everything falls in between there and so basically what we saw in every lake is that the overlap between pike and walleye was the highest. Um, it wasn't always considered biologically high. So the, the kind of threshold in a lot of other papers that have been published is about 
on that zero to one scale. But in most of the, most of the late categories that we looked at, they were in that, you know, 0 0.65 to 0 0.85 range for pike and walleye. Whereas muskie pretty consistently fell between below the 0 0.4 threshold for low biologically low overlap with the other uh. predators. It's uh, kind of a paired comparison of what the two predator species are eating. Okay. So it's a, it's a different met or a different number for each species pair. So the number for muskie and pike is different than the number for muskie and walleye is different than the number for pike and walleye. Okay. But it, it is looking at what the predators are eating. And so the, the muskies aren't eating the same things as the other predators in most systems. Hmm. And I think a lot of that is, I mean, the kind of the bigger prey items that a lot of the muskies were eating um, you got your suckers, your bullheads, your bigger sunfish in some lakes or muskrats. Yeah. Muskrats, whatever that <laughs> other stuff is like those other predators. They're, yeah. They're not big enough to, mm. to be able to take down some of that prey. So they're, they're kind of stuck they're, They have an upper limit of the stuff that they're able to eat. Whereas that upper limit for a muskie is basically another muskie. And that's, that's about it <laughs> right. at that point. So did you see a lot of difference between, you know, you're testing, you, I mean, you're checking the fish's stomachs in the spring and then you're checking the fish stomachs in the fall. Are there, are the, is the prey, consistently smaller in the spring as opposed to what you're regurgitating in the fall or does it really not not really have much because I, I guess the musky conception is fall cold weather bigger baits right. spring warm weather smaller baits yeah i mean i can kind of see where that comes from but from the stuff we've been getting that doesn't really seem to be doesn't correlate out. Yeah, I mean, some of the biggest suckers that we've seen in diets have come in April and May when the water is oh. still super cold. And I mean, or muskies aren't shying away from smaller perch in the fall if they're available. But yeah, it's once you get kind of part of that too, like especially here in Minnesota where we have closed seasons, like the season doesn't open for muskies until the first weekend in June. So by that point, some of your very early spawning fish are done spawning and you could Fun. potentially start having some new hatching happen at that point, which those newly hatched fish are going to be super small at that point. And then kind of as you go through the summer, you have those really small fish that are gradually growing bigger and they're also getting eaten at a pretty high rate by basically anything. So by the time you get to fall time, the number of really small prey is a lot smaller than it was in June and the early part of July. It makes sense. Whereas you have a lot more of those adult fish that are still alive from the previous year and those turn into the next viable prey option. Now, when the, you said that you found that giant pike in a stomach, when, what time of the year was that again? That was spring as well. Okay, that was okay. Yep. So we actually, the, I'm looking at the graph right now, and the 
it's a seasonal seasonal prey use graph and the i mean it's just a steady decline in the amount of pike or the importance of pike in the musky diets it's it's fairly fairly consistent with some of the other species in spring and then it drops pretty quickly down to pretty low levels in summer and fall Mm. so So pike is so pike in spring is a bigger food source for muskies yep pike in spring is a bigger food source so and that's i mean a lot of that Mm. is due to the fact i'm assuming that they're kind of spawning in similar areas Yeah. yeah so which makes sense but then I mean, we've also had nights where we're cruising around looking for muskies and you see a pot of walleyes cruising shallow water and then you see a muskie not too far away. And we, I mean, we saw a total of three walleye show up in muskie stomachs throughout the three years of the study so far. That's crazy. And even like that was actually one of the more surprising things to me, honestly, was that we didn't see more walleye show up in the musky stomachs i didn't think it would be a crazy number but after seeing how often they're sharing similar habitats throughout the year it amazes me that we didn't see more so i think the walleye are a little bit better than we give them credit for at getting away from <laughs> potential musky attacks just not what type fisher. of lighting what type of lighting are you using to try to sight fish at night they're just, I mean, your standard kind of farm and fleet, 12 volts, spotlights, light bars. yeah, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever kind of spotlights you can get your hands on. We do have kind of LED big lights mounted to the front of the boat, but they're the way they're set up. You don't get real great coverage. So we have just handheld spotlights that we use to kind of scan a broader area in front of the boat. And those are just, you know. 20 to 30 dollar spotlights that you get at a farm and fleet store okay because i mean i'm i'm very interested in in doing more night fishing on my lake because it's very small i thought you were going to say electro fishing i was picturing you out there on the dodo i want to i want to go out there i want to go out there and at least sight you know just sight fish you know like just go around uh, but i don't know how to even approach that well, that's the. Th- I was just going to say how it, it's so fascinating to me how this all ties into actual fishing. Like he, like he was saying, okay, they wait to go out at night because they're the, these muskie are easier to electroshock when they push up into right. shallow water. I so mean, what's that's that tell same, us? Same way you're night fishing for them, you're you're, you're targeting them in shallow water because they're moving up the hunt. He's saying like the the muskie are eating the pike in the spring. I mean, it's like he said, it's because they're their locations overlap for a little bit that time of the year you know you have the pike coming in and going from spawning musky coming in and going from spawning it's just, it's cool to see all these little intricacies and how you can back it up like something i've seen fishing where i'm like oh okay you know what i've seen that or like it's he says in the stomach in the summer they pump these stomachs the stomachs are empty because their metabolisms are raging like that's it, just it amazon prime an electroshocking transformer give it a go yeah it just all makes sense. It's really cool. Yeah. It's- so we're we are we are fast approaching the two two hour mark here, and I'll tell you what, man. I could, I swear to God, I I was gonna send a text out like, like I could keep talking about this forever, but you know I I know we we can't do this forever. But this has been 
absolutely fascinating and I don't want to cut it off right now. Like I want to say, Hey, what else do we have here that, you know, that anyone else has to follow up on? Because I really, I feel like I could, I could keep asking questions here. Is that an invitation for more questions? Yeah. It's an invitation to, to, to see what else we will see what else we have. I have one thing here and this is, this was something I, uh, I took a little note that Camden had mentioned at the beginning. I'll say the onset of this journey. Uh, Camden, you had mentioned about muskies not being afraid of boats. Yes. Good point. Okay. So my, <laughs> my question is, it's actually, well, I guess it's really one question. Do you feel in I don't, I don't know how I want to ask this. Do you feel that muskies could potentially use boats as cover in order to ambush prey? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think it's impossible that they could, but I don't know why they would. And so the reason for that is especially like if, if you're thinking a fishing boat or presumably a boat with people on it offshore, not tied up to a dock or something, that boat is almost always moving. And so for that muskie to use that boat as cover, they're going to also have to be moving, which is expending energy. And so at that point, like he, the muskie would be better off hiding by weeds or a log or a rock or even just like suspended over open water as opposed to continuously moving and expending, expending energy to stay under the shadow of the boat or whatever it is that they're using as the cover. See, I was curious what your opinion was, because we've talked about this a few different times about, you know, maybe drifting weed edges and things like that. You know, people have, have seen with some of the newer technologies like LiveScope, they've seen fish hanging under the boat. And I was just kind of curious, like, I know that's a weird question, but that's something that fascinates me because, you I know, think we're... too, Ryan, that's like, a, like, like, I think at least a couple of times I've heard that situation described it's usually like a follow right follows your lure in you get a fish out of cover right and then it hangs out under the boat and it finds that it finds the shade of the boat to be obviously more comfortable than anything else so it'll hang out in the shade of the boat but it's not like that it like chose that to be its you know cover well, here's an interesting concept for you guys, and I, I want you guys to actually really think about this because I we've seen this on the water, and I feel, based on what I've seen, that this could be a potential technique or we'll say strategy that the fish use. We short line in the spring, right? So you're running baits right in the prop, you know, a couple feet off the back of the boat. Well, these fish are they're smacking these baits you know, doing four miles an hour. So my question is, you know, these fish aren't afraid of boats. Are they using, you know, is it a potential that they could be using a boat, you know, like thinking about maybe a fish that's kicked up from the prop hanging off the back. Is it possible that these fish 
are using boats as a technique to essentially eat? Maybe there's no answer to that. No, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'll follow up. I want to see what Camden says about that. Yeah. I mean, again, I guess I would say there's probably no reason that they couldn't, but I, I'm struggling to wrap my head around why they would. That sounds, it sounds like a high risk, high energy expenditure compared to hanging out in a weed bed or in a down tree or something. Um, I think that's maybe what we don't realize is, is how much the energy expenditure is a part of the decisions that fish, that fish make. We kind of think that they are constantly swimming around and, you know, checking things out and just do, 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 do. Yeah, you kind of have to think of it as like a cost-benefit analysis. Like any t- anywhere it swims, that's more fish it has to eat. Right. I think your scenario, right. Ryan, the boat's hauling ass. These fish are they're seeing baits. They're thinking that the boat's spooking the bait, and then you know the bait the boat's stirring the bait up. So that stirs the fish up. I don't think the the fish are actively hiding behind the boat as it's moving five miles an hour for cover. I think that's no, more but of that's a casting no. But scenario. I think a short line trolling. I think short line trolling over like a shallow weed bed where you might get, you know, you might be stirring up prey fish. You know, yeah, and, I think and, that's what it is. Well, that's exactly yeah. what I said, though, is, you know, it's you got these baits hanging off the back of the boat. That prop is stirring stuff up. You're I'm just right. curious because I'm I'm like I'm the uh, you know, we're talking about some really technical stuff here, but sometimes I just want it to be more. I just want these fish to be super magical and like mystical creatures that just do crazy, insane things because I don't have any other explanation as to why I don't catch fish. So that's that's my thing. You know what I mean? Like should I have wanted... been using a muskrat. Exactly. Yeah. And it. That's another question I have. Like I I was going to ask this earlier, but like you talked about the baby duck scenario. Where can you buy live muskrats? Well, you know, I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to. I'm not against it. I'm not against it. I'm not really against it or for it. You know, that's why we have lures, right? Because it's like mimicking whatever. But like you have all these like whatever they are, savage geared ducks now, and like I see like rats. Like what? Like spiders? Like is it? Are these fish like it's not a major prey source? No, well, but what we know suddenly point... if a savage gear muskrat pops up, that Camden deserves some royalties <laughs> on this one, yeah, 100% accurate. But it's like that's my thing like, how much of that, of that actual diet, you know, is is captured in what we would consider a bait? Like, we get so caught up in color of lures and all this crap, you know, but these fish aren't eating like they're not eating tarantula spiders. They're not eating like watermelon colored fish. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Like like it's just how much of that is, you know, is it just like the industry or does it, you know, do you like you as a fisherman Camden, are you looking at this stuff? Like I'm taking that out because I'm going musky fishing and they're going to, they're going to crush this thing. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to fish a bright pink lure. Looks just like what I pulled out of its stomach. Right. Yeah. So Ryan, I might kind of crush your dreams here a little bit, but um, (laughs) you kind of have to remember that like the, these fish have basically two goals. Don't get eaten and make more fish. And so like, say they see this muskrat skirting across the top of the water, 
they don't see it and think, oh, that's a muskrat. I'm going to eat it. They see it and they see this thing swimming relatively slow at the top of the water without it. Yeah, no, no out, no easy way to escape. And they can basically get directly under it and shoot straight up and T-bone it. And the muskrat's never going to know it's there. It's, it's something that they're able to eat. So it's, I, I think that's kind of where, I don't know it. I go back and forth with it in my own like fishing too. Like, yeah, it's really fun to try and trick these fish and get them to eat but also are you really tricking them or are they just that stupid i guess mm-hmm. is, is kind of the the trade-off it's i reaction. go between yeah it, 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 mean, it really yeah. is it's it's basic biology when you come down to it like these fish are either eating or they're not eating they're reacting aggressively or negatively there's see we no... say that we say that but we've all had the experience of the muskies that just comes up just to check you out is literally just curious and that doesn't comport with you know the the aggressive versus non-aggressive fish that you're you're saving energy or you're expending energy there we all have muskies that will follow follow a lure around and not eat and just be lazy but i think that's another thing like uh, you know i mean that's another that fish is still looking at that lure it apparently doesn't look as, you know, low risk as the, you know, maybe a muskrat would that's swimming that, you know, I mean, it just doesn't look quite right to it. Maybe. Is that the Dory effect where they just want to come up and just like, Hey, I'm, I'm Dory. Maybe during the day, I think during the day, you you see more lazy follows where i've i've yet to do a lot of night fishing but i would think that there's probably less in the way of lazy follows night fishing more in the way of reactionary aggressive type of striking but then maybe i'm wrong yeah like how do you measure that though yeah yeah. you're not gonna see follows at night here Right. I love what you said about that, the whole whole reactionary thing. Because, I mean, you guys know I have the spot I go to every freaking year. I use the same lure. I catch the same freaking fish over and over again. And I think we give them credit. They're like, I hear people say, oh, yeah, well, the muskie caught on to double tens or they caught on to double eights. I don't think they catch on to shit. I think they're, you know, I think they're, I catch the same fish every year on the same lure. I don't even change the color or the spot. I go back to these same spots with the same lure. I caught them on last year and catch them again and they don't learn. I think that's just a matter. Like he said, they see something that's moving slow. It's a matter of like, is it going to kill me or am I going to kill it? I'm going to kill it. I'm going to eat it. Okay. I don't, I don't think they think about things as much as we give them credit for. If you're ever in Pittsburgh, Camden, I'll give you Tom's spot. Good. <laughs> we'll take you there. It'll be yeah. a little picnic. Yeah, we'll electrofish it. It won't be as it won't be an actual picnic for you, though. I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I would. I'm going back to that too. Like we, we talked about that. Like I'd really love to electrofish because I really think that would pad my stats come the end of the year. You know, just a well, little what, bit. What you fascinates would... me about the electrofishing is that you still have to be close to the fish. Like, it's not like this, oh, 
you know, you can just cast a wide net all over the lake and you're going to get these fish to pop up. Like you have to spend the time to find like you have to go to spots, right? Like you, you can't just go to the middle of the lake. So you're, you're, you're still finding musky habitat and you are, you have to get close enough to these fish. So obviously that's teaching you something in terms of what these fish are doing at night. You know, they are obviously more accessible at night. That's what I'm hearing here. You know, regardless of what they're eating, I'm hearing that they are a hell of a lot more accessible at night on, on a lot of these lakes. I will say too, I'm really happy Camden, you clarified because I honestly thought you just like turned that sucker on and drove around. I had no idea you had to be, yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, I had no yeah. idea. That's really cool that, you know, you, you clarified that. Cause I, I feel like I learned a lot tonight, but that was one of them. Right. Yeah. Owen, in terms of more accessible at night, I, they're more accessible to us, but from the fish that we see, I'm not a hundred percent sure how many of them are active at that point like a lot of the fish we're seeing at night when we're sampling like they're they're belly to the bottom on a sand flat and they're they just, probably just ate and yeah they're, they're just chilling they're just they're just chilling they're hanging out they're barely moving their pectoral fins to kind of keep themselves upright and that's really all they're doing and then even if we make too much noise or get too close and kind of bump them off their spot like they're not taking off more times than not they're kind of just moseying their way down the meandering yep. around yeah so it's it's pretty rare that we see them kind of up and moving around and that i mean part of that could be that those fish that are up and moving around are more aware of our presence or they're more just more apt to try to avoid the boat than those fish that are just kind of hanging out there but the ones that we're getting a lot of those are just kind of hanging out there in shallow water i feel like that's got to be like such a a puzzle like you could drive yourself crazy with you know are you sampling all the fish or are you just sampling you know some of them uh, you know a certain subset because of where they are and yeah and that's a, that's a question i've gotten multiple times when i've given like presentations to dnr groups or other kind of fisheries folks is you know what do you think about subpopulations within lakes where some fish are spending a lot of time shallow and some fish spend a lot of time over deep water chasing ciscos or whitefish or whatever other offshore bait fish might be available and it's i mean there's no great way to quantify that unless you do some sort of tracking study with a ton of fish and are any of those lakes that big in the sense that you know, uh, Bemidji, I don't know how big it is, but, you know, Georgian Bay, we've talked about this in the last, you know, a couple episodes or, or in the past that, you know, you, you might have these fish that are pelagic in nature that do not ever come back into the area where they could be sampled, tested, you know, caught anything until fall or whatever this magic time is, you know, but then there are small lakes where muskies can't go 12 miles out into the Georgian Bay and hide from anglers. You know, my lake is, is, you know, it's like a pond. So where, you know, are there different populations? Is there like a non-resident population in a small lake or is everything in a small lake, a resident population of muskies? Yeah. I, I don't have a good answer to that question for you. And it, even some of the 
tracking studies that they have done, a lot of them tend to be on larger bodies of water just because those tend to be, you know, your economically important, your biologically important systems where you're able to answer some of those big questions that might, they might translate to the smaller lakes, but the whatever you find on those really small lakes sure as heck isn't going to translate to the great lakes so that's i think that's kind of why you see the focus on some of those bigger systems um but yeah it's i mean even like within a small lake there might be a population that relates to the inside weed edge or is heavily weed oriented and you have to have some kind of weedless jig or something to be able to have a chance to catch them and there might be some that hang out you know even if the basin tops out at 20 or 30 feet like that's that's still out of structure and kind of open water even if it's not 130 feet deep or whatever whatever some of those other bigger lakes get to but i yeah that's one of the bigger questions that we still have as musky biologists is where the fish are going and how many fish right. are using different habitats. All right. I just, so I just can't that, stop thinking about how much Camden needs to go out and try and catch that 54 since he knows, I know. knows where it hangs out. knows exactly where it is. If he caught it two times. All right. Well, going off the bigger questions thing, I mean, are there any plans for the future? Do you have your eyes set on any other yeah, where do you go questions or hypotheses or? Yeah, so we're we're still working on some of the data from this year. Um, we're coming up here within the next month to month and a half. We'll be starting our next field season. So we have two lakes scheduled to do the, kind of the same stuff again this year. Um, one of the lakes is part of kind of a related project that branched off of this one. So they're using the diet data that we've been collecting and then they're doing population estimates of all four of the predator species. And they're going to kind of scale that up to population level consumption of the four predator species based on how many individuals there are within a lake and their specific growth rates and temperature in the lake and all the different inputs that we can give, give their models. Um, now, are you moving on to like, is this now for a PhD? No. So I'm, the position I'm in right now is a basically a term assistant position. So I'm employed through the school, uh, doing research again, and then also doing a little bit of mentoring of other students. Uh, we have one of my interns from last summer is now a grad student. So I'm helping out with trying to get her project up and running. She's going to be doing something related potentially related to the project I've been working on we haven't quite ironed out the details yet and then working with some of the undergrads at Bemidji State as well on some of their kind of senior research projects that they do every year so getting a chance to do some of that stuff and then doing quite a bit of writing Um, the goal is to get this research published in a scientific journal potentially with multiple articles so I've been doing Lots of lots of stats and lots of reading and writing the last few weeks. So <laughs> where do you think you submit that for peer review someplace? Yeah. So uh, kind of the standard one that my advisor steers his uh, students to the most often is North American Journal of Fisheries Management. Okay. Um, 
well, we haven't really decided on where we'll try to submit it yet. It might depend kind of on some of the final stats stuff that we do. We're so some of the stuff we're doing right now, um, we looked at kind of Cisco presence and absence and how it relates to diets, but because we didn't see a ton of Cisco in the diets, we're thinking there may be some kind of underlying characteristics of lakes with Cisco that might be driving those differences instead. So we're looking at kind of some different, different factors that we can look at to see if that might explain some of the diet differences better. So that's what we've been working on lately. In terms of long-term your career, how old are you? I am 27. Okay. So you're young. You are a young man. You've got, you know, you've got a long, long career ahead of you. Uh, you know, I'm like 20 plus, I'm about 20 years ahead of you in terms of, you know, work and everything like where do you see yourself and age? That's how, yeah. So where do you see yourself, you know, in 10, 20 years, are you working for DNR? Are you the head of a program, uh, you know, for musculunge management in a, in the Northwestern Pacific Northwest state where they're trying to introduce, you know, tiger musculunge to, to control certain populations. Where do you see yourself going from here? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to continue doing some research stuff, uh, more so at like the state agency level. So working for like a state fishing game or a DNR or something along that, those lines doing kind of similar research to what I've been doing now, looking at kind of fisheries management questions that we have and going out and collecting the data that will then inform the decisions that the managers use on the lakes. Um, Ideally somewhere in the upper Midwest, just because both my wife and I are from Northwest Iowa. So it would be nice to stay relatively close to family if we can, but we're also we've also moved around a little bit before, so we wouldn't rule that out if the right opportunity came up. Very cool. Maybe we'll Any, put a, uh, if it's all right with you, we'll put like a link or something up so that our listeners. Yeah. Can read I, I would like, I would yeah. like to put a link up for our listeners to be able to check out your research. Yep. Yep. That's all good. So I think you guys have that research gate link that I sent you guys. Yep. I have yep. it. I will, I will, you know, make sure we put that up there because I'm sure we're going to have people that want to look into the details here. You know, we've talked about a lot here tonight. You know, I think we've tried to keep it on more of a layperson's term mm-hmm. and not like deep dive into the, the specifics, you know, in terms of scientific names of these different species. And yeah, I'm not going to lie, Camden, of- a couple of those graphs, I haven't seen those for like 15 years a couple of those graphs lost me a little bit but for the most oh, part dude i googled i googled like 20 things from yeah. from the article just the name the just like the the latin names of it's gonna of, brush up on your latin come on yeah, yeah absolutely i've seen some as a lawyer I'm, you know i should be better with latin than i am that's for damn sure but that's it, right. very interesting though and i know people will like reading that the, the part that you guys don't see is how many different things I had to Google in order to write that paper. <laughs> so believe it. I, no, I believe it, man. That's part of an education. I, and I love that. That's, that's, I, I've, I really, man, I've really enjoyed this. I feel like we could probably talk for another hour, hour and a half and not get bored. But I think two, two and a half hours is probably about as much as our listeners might, might want 
want of this uh, of this topic. But honestly, if we hear otherwise, we'll have you back on, man, yeah. because Sounds I swear good. this has been uh, I have absolutely enjoyed every moment of this of this conversation. The Camden. Yeah, I have to catch the 54 before we'll have you back on. Yeah. So, oh, boy. That's, that could be a while then. I'm going on two and a half years since my last muskie caught on a caught on a rod and reel. So traditional. You know where it lives, though. I, I know exactly where a lot of them live, and it hasn't seemed to help me much. So husky, husky jerks. Husky jerks. And the worst works. case scenario we can have Camden back on is our resident musky poop expert. Yep. We have a lot of resident experts around <laughs> so, here. So Camden, is there anything you want to add? Uh, you know, anything you want to plug, so to speak, before we wrap this up? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been pretty quiet on my social media channels recently. It's, it's pretty boring if I'm posting pictures of the scientific articles that I've been reading lately. But here coming up on the Springfield season, I plan to take lots of pictures and potentially some videos again as we get back out in the field so if you're interested in following along with that stuff look me up on instagram and i post quite a bit on twitter too that stuff can get a little bit more technical there's uh quite a bit quite a good uh fishery science uh following on twitter so that stuff can get a little bit more technical than some of the instagram stuff but a lot of it shows up on both so if people are interested in the research or some of the findings or even just some of the cool pictures and videos that we see, feel free to look me up on those. In those so areas. give us your Instagram, Instagram handle and your Twitter handle. Oh boy. My Instagram handle, I think is just camden.glade. If I remember, right. we'll copy that. We'll copy that on our, yeah. our yeah. musky hunks Instagram. Yeah. So what about I'm, Twitter? Twitter? I know I am K glade underscore fish sigh. So F I S H S C I. Okay. So, and if, I mean, if you just look up Camden Glade on either of those places, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that shows up. So cool. no other Camden Glades electrofishing for muskie. Correct. Not that I'm aware of, anyways. <laughs> awesome. Well, dude, I can't thank you enough, yeah, man. Like you. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this. And guys, I, I, I assume you guys have as well. Oh, yeah. That yeah, was thanks awesome. For coming thanks. On, Camden. Yeah, Camden. Thank you for everything, man. This was awesome. You're you're way smarter than me. I can tell you yeah. that for sure. <laughs> Super interesting stuff, man. Appreciate what so you're doing. So we will we will be following along this spring and this summer as you get back out there and and uh, I'm sure we will have some questions for you and, and uh, to follow up on on our talk here tonight. Yeah. yeah Everybody take good. a look at take a look at Camden's uh social media for some some beautiful uh Minnesota fish with Gastric cool lavaging, solid patterns and stuff that we don't hashtag, see much. Hashtag fish puke. I was just gonna say that might actually be the easiest place to find me because that's that's usually included in just about all my posts, and I really don't see that show up anywhere else. So that might be the best place to search for me. Oh, I know. Right. Put, on, put on Instagram. Yeah, got a new hashtag. Just all to day. clarify, what is that again? Hashtag fish puke. That's what I fish thought. Puke. Sorry. All I right, boys. Well, hey, this was a blast. Thank you very yeah. much, Camden. Thank yeah, you, thank Camden. you, guys. It was fun. Thanks, All Camden. right, boys. Thanks, guys. Later. I had to shake them on my last case. Big O don't play. Big o don't play.